Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. So is it global warming or is it climate change or are we perhaps on the cusp of another ice age? Whatever, the world is going to end in precisely 12 years, according to the UN's climate hucksters. Sheila Gunn-Reed shall explain all. Yet another attack on Tommy Robinson, the British military is going after those young army lads who posed with him recently as if this was some sort of act of treason Rebel Commander Ezra Levent will weigh in on this latest outrage regarding the Tommy file. And at first blush, Venom is just another big budget action movie. Ah, but because this is 2018, even a superhero movie can get infected with leftist propaganda. Ben Davies shall share his thoughts. And finally, letters. We get your letters every minute of every day. I'll share some of your responses to my commentary about the hateful speakers that attended the Islamic Carry the Light conference in Toronto last weekend. Those are your rebels, now let's round them up. Nikki Haley just resigned her post as American ambassador to the United Nations, and she says she'll leave by the end of 2018. The UN is such a cesspool, and she was one of the few lights in it. All that's left behind are the dimmest of bulbs flickering on about the two things the UN seems to obsess most over, Israel and climate change. The doomsday oracles at the United Nations are predicting, wait, no predicting, predicting's the wrong word to use here. The UN climateers are promising that if humanity, sorry, I mean people kind, doesn't take great steps immediately to stop climate change, life as we know it will be over in just 12 years. Look at this article from The Guardian. The world's leading climate scientists have warned there is only a dozen years for global warming to be kept to a maximum of 1.5 degrees Celsius, beyond which even half a degree will significantly worsen the risks of drought, floods, extreme heat, and poverty for hundreds of millions of people. The authors of the landmark report say urgent and unprecedented changes are needed to reach the target, which they say is affordable and feasible, although it lies at the most ambitious end of the Paris Agreement pledge to keep temperatures between 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius. And Justin Trudeau's liberals, well, they are pushing this UN report as a reason we should all get back on board with their carbon tax and then support any subsequent increases to it. Why is the United Nations increasingly resembling that nutter from Central Casting? You know, that guy with the unkempt beard standing on a downtown street with a sandwich board proclaiming the end of the world is near. Well, there's no better person to ask than our very own intrepid Sheila Gunn-Reed, a journalist who has tried to cover UN climate change conferences, only to be turned away at the door for not drinking the PC Kool-Aid that is routinely served up by the United Nothings. So, Sheila Gunn-Reed, apparently we've got 12 good years left, unless, of course, we start paying more carbon taxes, I suppose, well, my friend, are you going to get cracking on checking off items on your bucket list before it's too late? Or like me, do you think civilization will still be around come 2030, even if we don't pay more carbon tax? 
Well, I'd love to be around in 12 years, but <laughs> I died from the nuclear fallout from Chernobyl. I died from the coming ice age. I died twice from the hole in the ozone layer. The CFCs in my spray cheese also killed me. That stuff will kill you, but not the way the government says it will. Um, I, I can't list it like the end of net neutrality. Remember when net neutrality was going to kill us all? I mean, these people at the United Nations are like a very well-dressed doomsday cult. They're not wearing the matching tracksuit. They're not wearing the matching running shoes. They have $1,200 running shoes, but they sound exactly like a doomsday cult. You know, this is a great point you raise, Sheila. You know what it reminds me of is in, the, um, in 1999, when the clock was ticking, remember Y2K? That when those digits turn over to 0000, planes were gonna fall out of the sky, elevators were gonna plummet, and really, people made hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, basically gaming the system, going around and having conferences of what to do. And of course, none of that came to fruition. It's kind of an overlap with this, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, and it's interesting that you brought up the whole money-making scheme in all of this, because now these same scientists who are telling us that the world is going to end in 12 years, like what a weird arbitrary number, 12 years. <laughs> You know, um, I, they can't tell me the weather tomorrow, but they the world is going to end in 12 years. But they say that it is necessary to have a $5,500 per ton carbon tax just to save the world from impending doom in 12 years. And Catherine McKenna, our environment minister, she's saying that Canada is going to meet and then beat our Paris Accord targets. Now, those are the targets that gave her the carbon tax, uh, she says we're going to meet and beat those because she knows Canada has to do more. So, you know, it's interesting that you hammer home on that point that, you know, a lot of money was made around Y2K. A lot of money is made by doomsday cults. He just gives the leader your money and he puts off the apocalypse for you. And the exact same thing is happening here. But they want a $5,500 per ton carbon tax. And Sheila, Miss um, McKenna is going to fail spectacularly in trying to fulfill that promise. You go back in the timeline to 1988 when this nonsense began with the Mulroney uh, uh, Conservative government uh, doing a commitment uh, to climate change uh, targets. And every regime federally has never met those targets, including the current one in power right now. Yeah, I mean... Emissions did fall under Stephen Harper without a carbon tax, and they're rising under the Liberals with this looming carbon tax over top of us. The Americans, right now, they are seeing a reduction in their CO2 emissions, if you care about those sorts of things. I really don't. Um, but they're doing it without a carbon tax because they're pushing more fracking and more natural gas. So there are ways to lower emissions, again, if you care about those things, but the answer to lowering emissions is not less fossil fuels, but more. Yeah, indeed, um, Sheila, when we look at Canada, it is a huge landmass, sparsely populated, it's cold, we rely on the development of oil and gas for a major component of our GDP. I mean, what are we supposed to do to meet these targets, freeze in the dark and shut down our oil industry? 
Well, it's funny that you say that we rely on oil and gas for a large portion of our GDP, but where I'm from, we rely on oil and gas for a large portion of our staying alive and not freezing to death. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you think about how, you know, just how unwelcoming the Canadian climate is, I mean, without fossil fuels, people will die. Right now in northern BC, they're seeing a a shortage of natural gas because they had a pipeline rupture. And it is a very scary, serious thing as the weather gets cold to know that you just can't flip on the switch and turn the furnace on. Um, but that's what these, uh, frankly, these UN elitists and government elitists, elitists want for us. At a $5,500 per ton uh, carbon tax, can you imagine what that looks like for the normal person? That's not driving. That's not putting your kids in hockey, that's no medicine, that's yeah. no refrigeration for your food. It is, you know, really just the people at the top surviving comfortably while the rest of us suffer and die. Yeah, I guess until we find a planet with the lithium crystals to mine, like they do in Star Trek, we have to rely on, on oil and gas. But, you know, Sheila, our friend at the Toronto Sun, Laurie Goldstein, last time I talked to him, I think he was up to more than 40 books that he read on climate change. I don't know how we could survive one but basically his conclusion with all that data it comes down to this this industry if we can call it that it boils down to a multi-billion dollar taxation and wealth redistribution program would you agree with that analysis I absolutely would agree with that analysis. This fear-mongering ramps up every time there's a major United Nations climate change conference coming up. And with the amount of rhetoric and and uh, doomsday occultism coming out of the United Nations and our politicians, it's almost like there's another one coming up around the corner in Poland in December. Yeah, and you know, last question. Let's just uh, briefly touch upon that, uh, Sheila. Uh, you're off to Poland in December uh, to get into the, the latest UN all-you-can-eat buffet known as a climate change conference. First of all, do you think they'll let you in? And secondly, I kind of hope they don't because I think you'll die of boredom listening to these uh, self-important people ramble on for hours about nothing. And also the fact that when you were shut out before at a climate change conference, the sidebar stories you found were so fascinating that these you know, bureaucrats from the world over did, couldn't even take the time to sort their garbage between you know, organics, waste, and recycling. So I think they do you a favor when they slam the door on you, my friend. Yeah, they're doing me a big favor. Um, uh, when <laughs> for real, when I went to Morocco, um, they had these con these like a little breakout sessions about conserving water, and I thought it was really ironic and strange that nobody noticed that in Morocco they had built this little village in the middle, and it wasn't little; it was large village in the middle of the desert, and every morning they were trucking in water to water the grounds to keep the dust down so that the dignitaries didn't ruin their $1,200 shoes with the dust as they were walking in <laughs> to these conferences to tell the rest of the world 
if it's yellow, let it mellow. Like I just, it was, it was so terrible. And then when, so they banned me, of course, from going to the next one. And then when I go to the next one, they don't let me in, but that's fine because I discovered what all the whirring noises were all around the conference. And it was these big, massive diesel generators and diesel powered light. Um, It's so, they're so oblivious to the things that normal people notice. And I, felt like I was the only normal person there. Oh, man, you couldn't make this up. Well, we'll talk before December, <laughs> Sheila, but good luck in December. And let's hope that there's no offended soy boys from Greenpeace that are going to call the cops on you this oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> like they did for being offended like they did last time. Yeah. Sheila, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me here. And uh, great report as always. Thanks, David. Have a really great weekend. You too, my friend. And keep it here, folks. More Rebel Roundup to come right after this. Most honorable morning I've ever had, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Class, eh? Makes it all worth it. An honor, an honor. So, no big deal, friendly selfies. No politics were discussed, really. This was just young lads. Junior soldiers, I don't know if that's afraid. I, don't, I think they're more than cadets, they're just young soldiers. Probably, probably most of them in their late teens. So they, they wouldn't even probably even have a deep knowledge of Tommy's whole political career dating back a decade. I bet they know him more from our YouTube videos and from his Facebook page, something he's only really been doing in earnest for a couple of years. So Tommy's a citizen journalist who loves soldiers and stands for British values as opposed to Sharia values. That sounds good to me. It sounds good to those soldiers. Of course they want a selfie with him because Tommy's like them, he comes from a patriotic British working class background. Tommy stands up for the forgotten Britain, what in America would be called flyover country or the rust belt, you know, people who the British singer Morrissey would sadly call nobody's nothings in the eyes of the fancy people. So yeah, these working class Brits love the last vocal patriot in the British public square. And so as surely as day follows night, people who don't like Tommy Robinson and don't like the military and don't like working class Brits, well, they freaked out. But, but about what did they freak out? Did these troops say something political? Did they do something political? Did they endorse a candidate in an election? I mean, just brainstorming here. Did they, oh, I don't know, stand next to the flag of a banned terrorist group called Hezbollah and give an approving speech? No, no, that would be Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Labour Party and possibly the next prime minister over there. Did these lads do that? Did these young soldiers do that? No, they did not. Did they themselves say anything, in fact, other than a few complimentary greetings and chanting his name briefly? Well, welcome to the so-called new normal folks, a bunch of young soldiers, men who are expected to put their lives on the line to protect the country if need be, find themselves in the crosshairs of the guns of political correctness. And for what? Posing for a selfie with Tommy Robinson? Well, already one of those soldiers you saw kibitzing with Tommy has been discharged. It's a safe bet there will be more disciplinary action coming down the pike too. But the question arises, just what exactly were these young lads guilty of? What are they being punished so harshly with to begin with? Joining me now with more on this latest disgraceful attack on free speech in the UK is our Rebel Commander, Ezra Levant. Welcome to Rebel Roundup. Thanks very Ezra. much. Um, Ezra, I, I'm trying to 
square this circle in terms of what's happening in the UK, especially when it comes to Tommy Robinson and freedom of speech. First and foremost, as I said in the preamble, what exactly did these young lads do that was so wrong? They were just at a truck stop, like a gas station with some restaurants at the side of the highway, four buses of these young British soldiers. And Tommy was there at the same time. He saw them, they saw him. They recognized him from his YouTube videos. And they recognized him because he's a pro-troops guy, pro-military guy. It's one of the things that got him involved in politics a decade ago. Mm. And so they, you know, and even if they didn't really know who they, he was, they saw him or heard about him. And they posed for selfies. These soldiers are, some of them are in their late teens. Yeah. And, and about a hundred of them posed for pictures with him, just shake, shook hands. And it was no big deal. There wasn't an ideological meeting. Yeah. They're just guys having a sandwich, and they posted some of these selfies to their own private Facebook pages. They, they didn't join any campaign, but uh, the Muslim Council of Britain complained, and a Muslim imam in the British military, their Muslim advisor, complained, and these men were, I think arrested is too hard a word, but they had their cell phones seized by their commander, who searched their cell phones for any contraband pictures with Tommy. Uh, and one of the men, I don't know if the right word is charged or brought up on charges, but he's being drummed out and is expected to be discharged from the army. He's just a teenager um, it, overtaking it, a selfie, like kicked out of his career. Incredible. And let's talk about what you've just raised, Ezra. The Muslim Council of Britain. The UK Armed Forces are taking their marching orders from this organization, an organization that signed a declaration saying that the Royal Navy was a uh, acceptable target for jihad. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're extremists. I mean, I was just uh, poking around and studying them a little bit. Um, it wasn't until just a few years ago that they even accepted the notion of a Holocaust Memorial Day. I, I don't know if it's they denied the Holocaust or supported the Holocaust. It was really weird. Like, if you're that far out there, that's so far out there. And like you say, they're anti-military to begin with. So for them to tell the British military what to do uh, and to knock out soldiers from the military, I, I wrote a little tweet. I said, this Muslim Council of the UK will probably wind up taking more British soldiers out of commission than a jihad uh, from a Taliban terrorist. I, obviously, it's not Without violent. firing a yeah. single bullet. Yeah, so yeah. if the Muslim Council of Britain can knock out one, five, 10, 20, theoretically, 100 soldiers from the British Army just by saying, oh, they're Islamophobic. For doing what? For taking yeah. a picture with a private citizen. Now, I agree that people in uniform should not, in uniform, do partisan things. You wouldn't want a police officer on duty wearing a uniform to campaign for this party or that party because we all have to be able to trust uh, that police officer as a neutral authority, that he's not a liberal cop or a conservative cop, he's right. just a cop. Same goes for the military. But I'm sorry, when you're on a lunch break at a truck stop and you, you take a personal selfie with a YouTube star, that is not the tantamount to destroying the uh, neutrality and integrity of the British Army. This is a politically correct witch hunt. And Ezra, let's talk about the double standard when it comes to crime and punishment in terms of the British Army. Tommy has pointed out there was one soldier who was found with tens of thousands of pounds of crack cocaine, no discharge. And the pounds there refers to dollars, not the, 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 Correct. the weight. Yes, <laughs> I should hear mm. pounds sterling. Mm. Um, two other soldiers caught molesting children no discharge for them. Yeah. A kid goes in front of Tommy, takes a selfie, 
your outmate. Yeah. Well, I, this is a disproportionate amount of punishment given the precedent that's been set, I think. Yeah, and um, it's, it's insane. I, I have uh, uh, evidence that I'm not permitted to use for it. I don't want to get anyone in trouble right now, but evidence uh, that hopefully I will be able to share with our viewers one day that this isn't just being handled at the local platoon or squad level. This is being handled at the general level, and even the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom has got involved. And that's insane, by the way. Um, and right now there's a shortage of recruits to the British Army, and I think part of it is they're so politically correct. And who would normally go and sign up for the Army? Well, patriots. Yeah. And especially, by the way, working class Brits, it's a military tradition. And, and sometimes for kids from a poor background, it's the way out of uh, an economic situation. And it's, you know, there's all sorts of wholesome reasons to join the military. They're having a tough time filling their ranks and they're drumming out these working class patriotic British kids. And by the way, at the same time, and I showed this the other day and our, your viewers can find it very quickly online, they're having specific Muslim targeted recruitment ads one of them is just incredible. The British Army shows a recruitment ad of a Muslim man out on exercises, out on patrol, and everyone stops while he takes off his boots, takes off his helmet, and does the Muslim prayers, and all the other soldiers wait for him. You're and, kidding. And then, only when he's done do they move. In fact, during the prayer, there's some commander who crackles in on communication, and the soldier says, shh, we're waiting. It, you can. I know that sounds like I'm making it up. It's um, just go to British on YouTube. Go to British Army. Maybe we can play some right now. In fact, uh, British Army faith, and, they sh and it's about I can be a British soldier and pray five times a day, including while we're out on patrol. It's that that's crazy, and but it's no crazier or no less crazy than kicking someone out of the military because he took a selfie with Tommy. That, that, that's, I didn't know about that ad. I mean, I have a book at home, How to Lose a War. I, I, there's now an updated version of that coming out because here's, here's another way in which to lose. Ezra, what's wrong with this picture? We have in the UK, as you know, hundreds of police officers basically eavesdropping on the internet to see if anything offensive is being said about Islam. We have, we know, 23,000 jihadis walking the streets yeah. of the UK. And yet, that's, well, that's in the periphery. Yeah. Here's a kid that poses with Tommy Robinson. And as you said, it's gone all the way up to the Ministry of Defense. Yeah. What is going on in that well, country? They've gone mad. And it's funny you mentioned these hate, hate speech cops or hate crimes or feelings police. The city of London itself, which is quite a large city, and they have a quite a large police force, the Metropolitan Police, um, they boast that that one city, London, and there's other big cities in the UK, Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, whatever, London alone has 900 police who do nothing but work on hurt feelings offenses. 900. And that's just the officers. That's not the support staff. That is larger than many police forces for entire city. 900 people, and they are paid to suss out hurt feelings, mainly in two uh, species transgenderism, and Islam. Yeah. So if you say something on your own Facebook page to your own friends, you can get a knock on the door. In fact, my show last night was about some uh, Hollywood-style comedy writer, not Hollywood, but in the UK, who called a transgender, male-to-female transgender uh, activist, 
called them by their male name, Steve, instead oh, of their female the name, Stephanie. And the police <laughs> went to caution him. The police went to caution him. And they put a, a note on his criminal record. It's not a criminal conviction, but it's on his police record now. That They went to caution him for saying Steve instead of Stephanie. Unbelievable. That's a true story. Ezra, um, I can barely contain my anger, so we're gonna have to wrap it here. And uh, folks, uh, we're not just ranting about it. Please go to our petition, standwithourlads.com. We have more than 140,000 signatures and it was just launched a few days ago. Tommy will be personally delivering that petition uh, to the British military and to 10 Downing Street. So again, standwithourlads.com and please sign that petition. We'll be back with more of Rebel Roundup right after this. As a critic, I give anime three out of five. The movie itself was a mess. The plot was just so chopped with things added, it was frustrating because what worked, worked. Tom Hardy fighting with a dark alien mirror version of his own personality, while they then buddy cop their way through conflict, romance, and action. All of that works really well, but because it's 2018, that was more like a blip, and they had to add side characters with their own moral conflicts to try to slow down the movie to a crawl. I mean, literally in an interview, Tom Hardy said the best 30 to 40 minutes of the movie were cut out, I guess, to make time for all this other stupid nonsense that doesn't do anything. No, I'm not kidding, and literally this is the second time this has happened, the reason why the bad guy is doing what he's doing is because of course the world is being destroyed by man-made climate change and it's going to be over in like 25 years. And they say it like, oh yeah, 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 we know. Yeah, we're done. One generation, we're done. Holy political correctness, Batman. Is nothing sacred? Does even a superhero action movie have to be politicized with left-wing propaganda? Uh, yeah, because that's how Hollywood rolls these days. And with more on the leftist lecturing served up by a movie about an alien symbiote, of all things, is our Tinseltown Rebel, Ben Davies. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait to talk about it. Indeed. Uh, ben, earlier this year, I had to sit through a horrible, awful movie called The Hurricane Heist that was made all the more awful by a lecture on climate change and now we have the superhero genre being contaminated this way as well. What gives, my friend? It's not, it's not a, an, a I don't know. Okay? So you're, <laughs> you're asking people, you're, you're telling people I'm going to make my art worse. It's just the most lazy way to create jeopardy in a story. And it's part of it is because the left is so pushing its own religion almost of leftism and everything is so valuable and so important that we must include it in the story, even at the cost of the narrative itself. And this happened in Predator most recently for me, where the villain was coming back to Earth and this whole thing was like, you know, we're destroying our planet anyway, so the Predators have to come back now and like take us because we're gonna destroy ourselves. And it was just like so matter of fact. And they literally said, you know, how long are we gonna last? One generation? And then in this movie, in Venom, when they're setting up why the symbiotes are coming there or why we have to fuse ourselves with these symbiotes is because, well, obviously, we're going to kill ourselves with global warming in, what, one generation? And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? And it's only because this is something being pushed, and it's a mix between people really believing it and then downright laziness as well. 
Well, that's incredible. I, I didn't know the Predator reboot had this kind of uh, uh, climate change contamination as part of it, too. And kind of the, I guess, yeah. the impetus for the Predators is Earth is about to become extinct. We better hunt them while, we, <laughs> while they're still alive. But, you know, Ben, there was, aside from the climate change uh, element in Venom, I mean, my goodness, a superhero movie about a villain. Um, there was also a scene you referenced in your commentary. It's um, There's a lecture being given by the bad guy, Drake, and a young black girl uh, interrupts the lecture and people in the audience are hushing her, as you should, because it's not your time to speak, honey. And Drake says words to the effect of, don't ever let anyone silence you. This is the qualities of a leader. Was this sort of a, a nod, Ben, to Black Lives Matter and, and their disruptive uh, techniques that they subscribe to? Oh, 100%. And what's, <laughs> it, what you, uh, one of the things about film, any director you talk to, any editor, the hardest thing to do is when you make your film and then you cut it down. Like in Courageous, the movie I did in 2011 that made like $40 million, it was a three-hour movie on the cutting room floor, and they had to cut it down to two hours because you cut everything that is unnecessary. And they deemed this scene that does nothing for any character development, does nothing to drive the story forward. They deem that necessary to put on the screen and bog down the first 40 minutes. And everyone that sees the movie, we are all lie detectors when you're in the theater. You don't even know why you get bored or why you don't like a character. But when you step back and really assess it, you can see why. It's when it's, something is unnecessary, it's forced, it would never normally happen even in that story. Like it's just unrealistic. It takes you away from what the narrative is about. And this is one of those scenes that bogged down the movie in the first 40 minutes that was just there to make a point. And everyone in the audience knows it, even if they not don't agree with it. Like, even if you think, oh, yeah, it's great that she spoke up, you're still sitting there like, why am I so bored? You know, and it, this happened in multiple scenes, multiple characters they added. But then once the story started, it was fantastic. But it's just they cannot help but shoot themselves in the foot. But it didn't affect them that much because it did break the all-time October box office record this past weekend. Yeah, and you know, we should touch upon that, uh, Ben. I, I mean, to me, it's kind of weird doing a movie about a Spider-Man villain without, oh, I don't know, having Spider-Man <laughs> have a scene <laughs> in it. But, but here's the thing. I have a theory, and it's based on my own son who, I haven't seen the movie, but he went to see Venom on opening night. And uh, he absolutely loved it, wants to go see it again. I have this theory, Ben, that there is a subsection of Hollywood that is making movies for 12 to 16-year-old boys that, you know, and, 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 they, and then they go to these movies. Do you think Venom falls into that category? Because on Rotten Tomatoes, it only scored 30%. But if you look, it has almost 90% from viewers. And Correct. So the people that got in got in to see it, which, you know, like your son, uh, people in high school that want to go see it or whatever, it definitely landed. And they really had the formula down. Like, this movie could have been really interesting. You had arguably one of the top actors in the past 10 years as this lead. You had one of the most ridiculous-looking CGI, amazingly done technological things on screen I've seen in a long time in the outfit and costume of Venom. And then you have the crazy dialogue and situation of having someone inside your head that has stakes with you but it's not actually who you are because you can if one of you dies you both die kind of thing so it's this interesting battle and also with like the relationships with like the actual love interest is interesting because it's two different perspectives going on in his head and you have a great actor doing this on screen and so moments of it are awesome and really fun to watch and then some things that hollywood just cannot help itself will bog down the movie like that but they definitely hit their demographic like you said the people they wanted to get in the seats got in the seats, clearly, because it was able to break the record. And uh, one last point, Ben. Uh, when it comes to the superhero genre, 
my all-time favorite film is The Dark Knight Rises. And it's mm. not just because it is such a brilliant end to the Chris Nolan trilogy, but it's also because, although I don't base my opinion on, on liking the film exclusively on this, I would argue that The Dark Knight Rises is the most right-wing superhero film you, you could ever watch. It's a condemnation of the Occupy movement, and it's also the, the, the underlying theme is when someone is in bad circumstances, you can choose to either, through the will of the individual, rise above it, or you succumb to it and go down a dark path. What, what is your opinion of that film, Ben? And, and do you think we'll ever see another superhero film uh, made in the Hollywood of today, which leans right? I 100% agree with you. The Dark Knight series is the most conservative superhero, even trilogy, like even every every movie of that is telling a different aspect of something that we know to be true. They're all archetypal characters and stories that we can all latch onto that are truthful. Any movie that is truthful is going to be somewhat right wing, but that has it's more clear. <laughs> Especially the Dark Knight Rises, because one of the the villain in it, it like it it comes in the shape of Bane. But really, what causes people willing to die in a plane crash just to keep this facade going is because it's more than them. Because it's an idea. It's like a, it's a, it's a new, it's a the way that people should live. It's 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 basically like Marxism. Basically, it's a super version of that in in Bane's ideology. He's trying to impose on Gotham to make this point. And uh, you can there'll be more more movies like this. You can see that bleed in with some of the Captain America movies. But it's not going to be as on the nose, I don't think, unless a director has enough control as someone like Christopher Nolan or maybe Michael Bay's kind of conservative. But you're going to have to you're going to have to have to someone that is actually conservative that is also big enough to tell the to, to tell all the studios to shove it and let me make my movie because it's going to be better because I'm not going to add all this stupid stuff to bog it down for 40 minutes, just like in Venom and not add all these stupid characters that mean nothing, that do nothing. I'm going to make a great movie my way and you'll reap the benefit of it but you're gonna have to let me take the reins. And, and it's gonna take a great director and a really good story to do that. But I mean, The Dark Knight Rises, that whole trilogy is just once every, in a lifetime probably. <laughs> oh, oh, I agree. And, and maybe also part of the, um part of the formula, Ben, is convincing the studio that this is a moneymaker because ever since the inception of Hollywood, the biggest star in Tinseltown is, of course, the dollar sign. That's typically what drives things, right? So we shall see. Absolutely. Well, any, anyways, Ben, uh, thank you for sitting through Venom for us so that we don't have to. And uh, <laughs> The second I, half is actually fun. Like, okay. <laughs> That's great. And hopefully the next film will be a little better. Uh, so thank you again, my friend. Absolutely. Great. That was Ben Davies in Hollywood, folks. And keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. Excuse me, ma'am. Hi, ma'am. Can I not ask you? No, no? You are not, we are not allowed to. I'm not allowed to ask a question of this lady? Okay. This is hazardous. Pardon me. You're stopping the cars coming in, and there are people with the kids. I'm on a sidewalk, sir. You're interviewing on the road. Like you, you just came outside and. and well, that that was one lady with a stroller. I'll, I'll stand here. Okay, then. You can do that. Uh, yes, you can. But why? Why would you do that, sir? This is private property. Okay. All right. Your, your star speaker, Linda Sarsour, is the biggest proponent of Sharia law in the United States. So, what's the big deal about it? Who, who, what's the big deal? Yeah. Well, who cares about the Sharia law? 
We are not here for Sharia law. We are, we are here to live as a Canadian citizen, yeah. with, uh, with law-abiding citizen. We want to live in a pluralistic society where we can coexist with each other. We have nothing to do with Sharia law. Is Sharia law compatible with Canadian leave law? this sir? place. Please leave this place. Well, sir, you have no authority to make me leave. Well, from the conference centre entrance to the parking lot to here on the sidewalk of Airport Road, we have been um, pushed as far as we can go. And uh, even though we are on a public sidewalk, um, we're still being shadowed uh, by security guards. But you know what, folks? They couldn't stop the truck. Thanks to your generosity, that Jumbotron-equipped truck made certain passers-by were informed of the toxic comments by those hateful speakers who had gathered within the confines of Toronto's International Centre. Well, we indeed tried to cover the Carry the Light conference last weekend, which was staged by the Canadian arm of the Islamic Circle of North America. But alas, Ikna's head honchos didn't want us to shed any light on Carry the Light. And given the roster of hateful speakers headed up by the odious Linda Sarsour, is that any wonder? Sarsour, of course, is a feminist who supports Sharia law in the West and has no qualms when it comes to female genital mutilation so long as the victims are her ideological foes. Yeah, Linda is a regular Susan B. Anthony, isn't she? In any event, here's what some of you had to say about Ikna's little Thanksgiving hate fest. Regarding the hope for implementation of Sharia law, Michael H. writes, there is a misconception, really? So it is a misconception when, according to Sharia law, a woman who gets raped is then stoned to death for the act while the man walks away, or being gay means an automatic death sentence. Those kinds of misconceptions are pretty far spread, so Islam better start clearing those misconceptions up rather quickly. Yes, Michael, we heard time and time again from the Sharia apologists that Sharia law, well, it's not really all that bad, that it might even be compatible with Canadian law and the Canadian Constitution. Does one laugh or cry or just get really angry? Evermore writes, Sarsour wanted to take away the vaginas of women who disagreed with her. Indeed, folks, she actually did say that, and one of her targets was none other than Ayan Hersey Ali, a victim of female genital mutilation. Again, Sarsour is really one special kind of feminist, isn't she? Jim Dandy writes, duh, there's a reason the Liberals wanted M103, so you can't criticize Islam. You know, Jim Dandy, this is the ultimate irony. If Motion 103 were to become the law, just merely reporting on this conference, as we did, could be deemed as an act of Islamophobia and we'd be charged with a criminal act. Meanwhile, the likes of Linda Sarsour and her mentor, Siraj Wahaj, who was an unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, well, they can waltz into Canada and spread their toxic hatred with impunity. Thank you ever so much, Ikra Khalid. And Mike is Nipe writes, Sharia law will never be in any Western country. That's a fact. Um, I'm afraid that's not a fact, my friend. In the United Kingdom alone, there are already more than 80 Sharia courts. And as the Muslim population increases in the West, expect some members of that community to push ever harder for more Sharia. 
And King of Ireland, it's my island, writes, great, great work here, bravo. Well, thank you, King. But you know what, folks? Bravo to you, because we could never have rented that Jumbotron-equipped truck without your generous donations. And hey, if anyone still wants to chip in a few bucks to help us cover our costs, we're much obliged. Oh, and by the way, there's still time for you to visit our website, lindasarsour.ca, to sign our petition. This petition isn't out to ban or muzzle Sarsour and her ilk. Rather, we want to call on any politician who has worked with IGNA to renounce their support for this organization. Supporters of this extremist group should own their decisions and defend their actions or admit they were wrong and disavow. And folks, next week, I'll be personally delivering this petition to IGNA's Canadian headquarters. Stay tuned for that one. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night.